Are you struggling to believe that there is a purpose for your life? That after all you've been through, seen or done, that there's a chance you'll ever find peace and wholeness again? Welcome to Love and Be Loved. This podcast explores what matters to us the most. Overcoming adversity, success stories on relationships with God, ourselves, and others. Now here is your host, Lena Sibula. I'm so glad for you to listen in today. Honestly, guys, this is the reason why I create this podcast. Before I thought my story was story of guilt, shame, and condemnation, and it was the worst of the worst. That's why I hid this story from others because I thought I would be um, rejected and abandoned and judged. But right now, listening this conversation with my amazing guest, Amanda Pulley, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm so grateful that this courageous woman sharing her story. So that's how your story received. Don't believe the lies that you are alone. Don't believe the lies that there is no hope. Don't believe the lies that you're going to be rejected and abandoned. Honestly, it was mind-blowing for me that people share their own stories with me. They love on me. They told me that it's not my fault. And the most importantly, that God loves me. So I hope and pray through this conversation, you hear the story of hope and overcoming and success and thriving, not without its struggles. I want to introduce my special guest today. Amanda Pulo is a human trafficking expert, trainer, consultant, and survivor. For the last seven years, she has worked directly with human trafficking victims, consulted with Homeland Security, the FBI, and numerous law enforcement agencies, and developed a human trafficking advocacy training specifically designed to equip advocates in this field. Welcome, Amanda, to Love and Beloved podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I believe is a key time for us all as individuals to educate ourselves about human trafficking. And it's crucial to learn to spot red flags and um, just know more and create awareness. So you, Amanda, are perfect candidate for Love and Beloved platform, which is designed to encourage, inspire, and to give hope. I'm so grateful that you have agreed to share your expertise with us. So please, Amanda, tell us a little bit about yourself and where is your journey began? Yeah, so my journey is messy, just like most survivors. Um, you know, I didn't even know I was a survivor of human trafficking until I started volunteering in the field. And um, I had a um, program director that I was working with and working underneath as a volunteer. And she said, Hey, you should read Rebecca Bender's book, uh, Roadmap to Redemption. And I started reading it and going, wait a second. I identify with that, that weird thing that I could never explain in my teenage years, that was actually human trafficking and sexual exploitation. And so I was able to start putting terms to what I knew and go back and, um, do a lot of work through therapy 
um, while at the same time continuing to volunteer in the field. And that volunteer position turned into a paid position. And um, I've been working as an advocate in direct service um, for victim survivors of human trafficking for the last seven years. And this past year, God put it on my husband and I's heart to start our own agency where we are actually educating advocates on how to provide services in the most effective way. Um, There's not a lot of trainings out there that specifically focus on advocacy training for human trafficking. And so um, that is part of our goal. Um, And then my uh, my husband focuses on the demand side um, reducing demand for human trafficking as well. This is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing how your life transformed and how you actually went to that field, went to help. Because I do believe God give us past experiences so we can use them helping others right now. But for you, even side, okay, I'm going to this field. And then you figure out that you actually was traffic would you be open to talk about this or it's still painful to go look into your past oh no I what happened yeah I publicly share my story all the time I yeah I find it interesting how many times we assume that survivors know that they're survivors you know um we expect them to call our agencies and say hi I'm a victim or I'm a survivor of human trafficking you know and that's how they're supposed to identify, but many of us don't recognize that that weird thing that happened to us or that thing that made us uncomfortable or that situation was actually human trafficking. And a lot of times I find that even greater of a barrier for those of us who've experienced familial trafficking. And they, you know, when you've grown up in systems of abuse and especially sexual assault, sexual traumas, Um, You just don't recognize that trafficking is a real thing, that that is sometimes part of our story. So for me, I, you know, grew up in a very small town and I usually explain my life like a coin, you know, on one side of a coin, you see one image and you flip it over, you see a different one. And if you look at my life from one side, you would see a pretty normal childhood. Um, You would see a somebody who did their best in school. I was by no means a straight A student, but I was a very good student in school. I played sports. I was very involved in my church and for all extents and purposes had a pretty normal upbringing. You know, I put that kind of in air quotes. Um, I don't really know what normal is anymore, but you know, you wouldn't look at me and go, oh, she has a lot of trauma or issues in her past. But if you flip the coin over, you see a whole different perspective. So my parents were divorced when I was really young. And in the town that I grew up in, you know, we were, I was the only divorced kid that I knew or kid growing up in a divorced home. And so I really struggled with that. I desperately had this attachment to my dad and wanted him to come home. Um, There was no communication with him through most of my childhood. And then outside of that, my home was very chaotic. We looked like the perfect Christian family. My grandparents were involved in the church. So I guess I should explain. I grew up in a house with my grandparents, uh, my mom and my sister. 
And we all lived under one roof, but that roof was pretty much like a revolving door. We never knew who was staying at our house. We never knew how long they were staying there. And we were also known for taking in people struggling with different things. That could be addiction. That could be a marriage issue. That could be all kinds of different scenarios. And so um, I had a drug addicted uncle who lived in our basement for most of my life. Um, And so I learned from a very early age, you don't touch dirty needles. He had um, HIV. And so I learned how to clean the bathroom before I even used the bathroom. If he had been in there just, you know, for safety precautions. And, you know, I, those things were just normal to me. I didn't recognize that other kids weren't having to do those things. Um, I would come home from school and my main question would be who's here. How long are they staying? And do I get to sleep in my own bed tonight? Or am I giving that up for someone else? You know, and sometimes I was expected to share my bed with other people. There wasn't this boundary around, this is your stuff. This is your area. And you get to utilize this for yourself. It was very much a community. And so on top of that, the church that I grew up in was very much a cult. They were, you know, if you looked at them from the outside, you would just think it's a normal church, but the practices were very cult-like. And um, you were expected to dress a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain way. And if you did something outside of that, you were immediately kicked out of the family or outside of that church congregation. And so I knew I was already behind the eight ball because I came from a divorce home and my grandparents listened to um, certain music that the church didn't approve of in our home. And so I knew that there were these secrets I had to keep. Um, The church didn't know everything that was going on in our home. And so there was a lot of withholding information, but desperately wanting to be known. And so my mom, when I was very young, ended up getting remarried. It was an abusive situation at a very young age. I remember seeing my mom beaten for the first time. She was almost um, killed. He had set, he had tied her up inside of our trailer and set the trailer on fire. And so I remember my mom hardly making it out of that. Um, A few months before that scenario happened, my um, grandfather's sister and her husband had moved into our home and they stayed with us while they were looking for their own place in the area. And I built this connection with them. They would let me go to their house and do normal preteen things. I could watch movies. I wasn't allowed to watch at home. I could, you know, and I wasn't doing anything bad per se. It was just, I could live more of a normal preteen life. And so I really enjoyed going there the day that that trailer was set on fire. Um, it was the first day I'd ever seen my grandparents upset. I had ever, my grandpa looked at me and told me to lock the doors and the doors to our house were never locked. I, it's the only time in my life I ever remember hearing them say, lock the doors. And I remember him grabbing his gun and thinking he's going to kill somebody and he's going to go to jail. And I, I can't handle that. Like I need him. Um, he was the only solid male figure in my life. And so I remember being really, really, really scared. So I ended up calling this my great aunt and uncle who used to live with us and asking them to come and be with my sister and I at the house. And 
later on, I found out my grandparents were really upset that I had done that because I shared family information too far outside the little bubble. Right. But again, that shows the dynamic of secrecy that we were holding as a family and that expectation that you don't share things outside of our small family unit. And so I had called them to come and be with us and they came. Um, I was so excited when they got there. I felt like, okay, I don't have to mother my sister as much. My mom had always been there, but not really there mentally. She had a lot of trauma that she hadn't dealt with. And so I was really the parent of my sister for most of my upbringing. And so I was thrilled that they had shown up. However, that was the first day that my great uncle assaulted me for the first time. Um, and I remember it being such a confusing moment because I had called him to help me. And in that moment, he was telling me that the way to calm myself was to allow him to make me masturbate and to, um, for him to do those things to me. And so I remember being so confused as to what does this actually mean for me? And did I do this to myself? You know, and then going back to the church, I grew up in purity culture. So nobody ever talked about that. There's a difference between rape or sexual abuse or trauma and choosing to have sex with someone, you know, and in my mind, I had just committed the ultimate sin. I was no longer a Christian. God didn't love me. Uh, There was nothing good about me left because I had chosen this. I didn't recognize that I didn't really have a choice in the matter. Um, And so that abuse with my uncle went on for many years, off and on for years. He would come and pick me up and take me go-kart riding or take me horseback riding or, you know, do lots of fun things with me. But those fun things always came with a cost. There was always a, okay, I did this for you. Now you need to do this to me. And so that really started the path of the sexual trauma in my life. My stepdad that was super abusive had tried a few things. Um, he also sexually abused me. It was, you know, it sounds weird to say it was more minor, um, because sexual abuse is sexual abuse, but compared to what I was experiencing with my uncle, that was much lower on the scale. And then I also, uh, At some point in my childhood, my dad came back around for a little while and his brother also sexually abused me. So I had a ton of sexual abuse in my background and no place to talk about it. No place that was safe because everything I was hearing from the cult that I was growing up in was all of those things are your fault. You must have worn the wrong clothes, said the wrong thing, invited the wrong spirits to come upon you, and therefore you are responsible for what has happened to you. Um, And so that really set the stage for what was to come with my trafficking and exploitation. When I was in junior high, my one of my friends and I had a sleepover and we were playing truth or dare. And which I always tell parents that's such a dangerous game um, for kids to be playing because you never know what's going to come up in that scenario. And they were asking some questions about sexual experiences. And I started talking about it. Well, my best friend at the time, her mom was a state trooper. And so she caught on to something's not right. 
she went and talked to her mom and they ended up bringing me into the church of all places and started questioning me around those experiences that I had had. And I was terrified. I thought I was going to go to hell. I thought I was in trouble. I had no idea. And to make matters worse, the youth pastor that I was talking to literally put his hand up like in stop sign format and said, okay, you need to stop because I don't know what to do with this information. And he was like horrified. He didn't know if he was supposed to call the police. He didn't know um, how to proceed. And so that made me feel like I needed to shut it all off and shut down even further. He ended up coming back to me the next week. He brought my mom into the scenario, which was horrifying to tell my mom this with my mom's mental health um, situations. I thought it would send her off the deep end. And so, and I thought my grandpa would kill the guy. And so I was worried about everybody else instead of my own experience and ended up sharing what exactly had happened. They did call the police, ended up going through a whole trial. I, as a uh, junior high student, was put on the stand and had to testify. Even more traumatic than that was... um, And thankfully, they normally don't do this anymore. Our legal system has learned that this is not healthy for survivors, but they actually had the state trooper had me call my uncle and get him talking about the scenario and the sexual abuse before the trial happened. And that's how they caught him um, because he admitted it to me in having that conversation. So it was horrifying to have to go into detail with my uncle, with a state trooper sitting there writing notes to me, you know, ask him about this or see if he'll talk about, you know, this scenario that you told us about. And, you know, that was just horrific. And then to be put on the stand And, um, to have to publicly say words that I was taught, we don't say, you know, we don't talk the way I grew up. We didn't talk about genitalia. We didn't talk about anything that had to do with sexual anything. You know, if the word sex or sexuality came up, you were already in trouble, much less going into detail. And so I was expected to share my side of the story on the stand and, um, sitting literally probably 10 yards in front of me was my pastor. And so I knew in the depths of my being that I was going to hell the minute the word penis came out of my mouth, you know, and, um, thankfully the judge was very kind hearted and allowed me to say some of it more quietly and privately between the lawyers and him. But at the end of the day, he told me, he's like, I need you to say these things out loud so that I can give here what actually happened and give the appropriate sentence. So he was sentenced. And yet when I went to school that next week, all my friends knew about it. It had been in the paper. Um, It was a very small town. And so everybody knew what had happened to me. And I felt like my world was just over. Less than a month, maybe two months tops from that time, um, one of my friends who went to our church, she had somebody new sitting in her pew, which, like I said, was very cult-like. So we all had certain seating in the church that we always sat in. Um, And I was singing in the choir that day, and I saw this new person sitting next to her. And I looked at him and I was like, yeah, he might be kind of cute, but I can't really tell. He looks kind of old at the same time. And um, then the next week he came in and he looked completely different. 
He had new glasses. He looked um, much cuter, much more youthful looking. And I was like, well, who is that? Um, Is that even the same person? Found out that it was her brother. Her brother had just gotten out of jail, actually prison. Um, He had been in for about 10 years and he had given his life to Jesus and started coming to church. And he ended up very quickly being a youth leader in the um, youth group that I attended. And my whole life was wrapped around this youth group. I served in youth group. I taught kids classes. I, um, I really felt like one day when I grew up, I was going to be a missionary and I wanted to, oddly enough, my life hero has always been Amy Carmichael who worked in India, pulling girls out of the temple that were given over as sacrifices or in prostitution in the temple. And so she was always my life hero, which I think is such a God thing, right? That he would give someone to me to look up to who I felt like understood me in some ways. And so I really felt like I was supposed to dive in and be as part of the church as I could and always had this struggle between what the church was telling me was God's way of doing things. And yet behind the scenes in all the abuse that I had suffered, God walked with me through that. Um, there was a special place in the woods that I would go and sit and God would literally come sit with me on, on a log in the woods. And we would talk for hours and hours and I would tell people, no, no, no. I talk with God. I've seen him. And they're like, no, you're crazy. That's not possible. You know, God doesn't work that way anymore. And I'm like, well, he does for me, you know? And so I, again, learned to hide who I really was and what I really thought to fit into this cult like religious system. And, um, so, you know, this guy starts coming, he starts being involved in our youth group. He starts developing a relationship with my family, with me, um, with many of the girls in the youth group. And he, at one point approached my mom and asked if he he could start mentoring me. He said that I was awkward around the guys And that he wanted to be a big brother to me and show me just kind of how to act around guys and um, to stop being so weird, basically. And my mom thought that that was an amazing idea and invited him into our lives. And through that, in the beginning, it was great. Um, He taught me to drive. We went and did fun things. I grew up very poor. And so shopping for us was going to the 50 cent bins and filling a bag for 50 cents. And that's what we would wear, Um, you know, and he would take me to Old Navy and buy me something off the rack, you know, and I thought that that was the best thing in the world, you know, that I would get something brand new and he would take me out to eat, which out to eat for me was McDonald's dollar menu, you know, and he would take me to a real restaurant. And so I thought that this was the best experience of my life. Until one day he encouraged me to skip school. It was the first time I'd ever skipped school in my life. Um, He told me he wanted to take me out for a really fun day, but that he couldn't, we couldn't tell anybody about it because he really did like me. He wanted me to be his girlfriend, but because of his role in the church, I wouldn't be able to tell anybody. And, you know, if you remember from the beginning of my story, I was already used to keeping secrets. Like it was no big deal for me that another man in my life was asking me to hold a secret. So that was not a red flag in my mind. 
And so of course I agreed. I thought he was cute. You know, he was the first person who ever kissed me first one to hold my hand. He was being super sweet. And so when he encouraged me to skip school because he wanted to go out and have this special day with me, I was thrilled. And I thought it was going to be super fun. The fun day that I thought we were going to have was actually him taking me to a hotel and raping me for the first time. And he made it very clear that while this was about the two of us, there was a much bigger picture at play because he kept telling me, I need to teach you how to make guys happy. I need to teach you how to tease guys. I, I need to teach you all of these things. And I had no framework for that. I was so confused. I didn't know what he was talking about. And so this whole situation just started to unfold where the abuse heightened, you know, he was very good at hiding any of the abuse. So it was always in areas that would be easily covered by clothing because he knew how conservative we had to dress. And so he um, was very good at just beating me in those areas. The control factor, um, it was, you know, I was kind of on that verge of the age where we started getting cell phones. And so he made sure I got my first cell phone and I had to check in with him in the morning and at night. I had to tell him every article of clothing I was wearing, what color it was, what it looked like. I had to get my hair cut a certain way. I had already been struggling with anorexia for most of my life. That was the way I controlled um, what was going on in my life. And so he played on that. You know, you, I couldn't be above a certain weight. I had to fit into certain size of clothing um, because that's what he would buy me. You know, and so the trips to Old Navy stopped being, well, what do you want? Just pick something and being, you're going to wear this. In doing that, what he was doing was ostracizing me from the community because he was buying things that were not approved for the conservative dress code. And so I was very much getting in trouble at church constantly for what I was wearing, the way I was carrying myself, but it was all because I was being forced to do those things. Um, so I tell people all the time, especially in the church community, sometimes the teenagers who look like they're living in sin are actually being abused and they have no other way to, they, they don't have a way to tell you that that's what's happening because they really do think that they're just sinning and they're just doing all these things wrong. And then the church community is telling them, well, you need to stop doing all of these things. Well, Sometimes those things are actually red flags of abuse, not necessarily that they're choosing to do something that isn't according to what the church standard of a biblical young Christian should be acting like. And so that was very much where I was in my journey, you know, to make a long story short, um, I was in the life for probably about two years you know, like most survivors, my timeframes are a little off. So I'm always hesitant to say exactly how long I was in. And what ended up happening was, uh, one of my friends, we were at a youth group event. We were changing in the same room. I thought I had waited till everybody left. Didn't realize she was still there, went to change. And she saw some of the bruising. She grabbed my cell phone, dialed the first number on the phone, which was my traffickers. And he shows up pulls in the parking lot. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew what truck he drove. And she immediately knew something was wrong. She then went and told her parents who told the youth pastor of the church, and they brought both of us into a room, sat us down and asked us what was going on. 
he sat there and said, well, she's really hot. She's young. I'm attracted to her. Um, I'm sorry I screwed up. And I wouldn't say anything. Um, he had given me a signal. There was a certain way that he scratched his face that meant shut up and don't say anything. So I didn't say a word the whole meeting. And by the end of the meeting, they basically said, well, you don't seem repentant. So you're going to be kicked out of the church. A week or two later, I was put up in front of the church. They kicked me out of the church and they welcomed him back in as somebody who was repentant. What they didn't know is that there were five other girls in the church that he was also trafficking. They didn't understand that he was actually grooming many of us to be at that point. It was probably more exploitation that he was exploiting us, but that he was grooming us and getting us ready for that full out trafficking experience. When I got kicked out of the church, my depression and anorexia really heightened. I tried to commit suicide a couple of times, was unsuccessful. And after one of those attempts, my mom decided to have me committed to the psych ward. But she called him to let him know that they were going to have me committed to the psych ward. They felt like maybe he would be able to get through to me. He came to my house. He instructed me how to act in the psych ward and that I was to fight the nurses and take any medication that they gave me. Um, But I was not to let them see the bruising on my body, which never deems well in a psych ward to just start fighting the nurses. And then when my 24 hour hold was done, he was the one who picked me up from the psych ward, not my mom. Well, when he picked me up from the psych ward, he ended up taking me to my dad's house. So a little bit of the story that's kind of hard to weave in here is that my dad had moved back to the area around the same time that he had moved into the area after getting out of prison. I had no idea that they knew each other or could know each other. My dad and I had a really rocky relationship, but I missed my dad. I wanted a relationship with my dad very desperately. And so when we started having issues in the relationship where he was abusing me, I thought if I introduce him to my dad, my dad will pick up on this and he'll protect me. Well, that wasn't really the case. Uh, We went to my dad's one weekend and within five minutes of being there, he told this, who I would have called my boyfriend. He was actually my pimp. But he told him to go ahead and take me in the back room and have sex with me there or rape me there. And I was floored and felt completely rejected and like no one in the world understood or was actually going to stand up and protect me. My dad offered to let me come live with him once I was kicked out of the church. But he told me that if I wanted to come live with him, that I would need to take on wifely duties. When I asked him what that meant, he said, that means you cook, you clean, and you have sex with anybody I tell you to. And I was like, um, I don't really want to do that. So after the psych ward incident, when we left the psych ward, um, my trafficker took me directly to my dad's house. When I got there, my dad and this trafficker, both of them together raped me. And it was made very clear to me that I had no option but to stay there, that me taking on these wifely duties was now going to happen whether I liked it or not. And so they told me if anybody gives me money, it's not mine, it's theirs. And that I was to wear basically lingerie. I didn't really have a word to explain what lingerie was. You know, I was so sheltered growing up, but 
there, you know, I remember there being a pole in the middle of the living room and we were expected to utilize it again, had no idea what that even meant. I just knew, okay, I'm supposed to twirl around this thing. And so, um, was there for quite a while. Like I said, I don't have an exact timeline of how many months or days I spent there mainly because at that point I'd given up on life. I didn't have a desire to count how many days I was there. I just knew I was going to die in this trailer and there was no way anybody was ever going to believe what had happened to me or that it wasn't really my choice, you know? And so after I'd been there for quite a while, I woke up one day with this burning desire to fight back, which was completely out of the ordinary. I had already been broken. I had already been um, beaten down enough that I didn't fight. I just was told I couldn't leave the trailer. I never even tried. And for whatever reason, I woke up with this fire in my spirit that day. And, uh, my pimp was outside and he said, Hey, I want you to come out here. Well, I hadn't been outside in a long time. And I, I remember looking at him and questioning him and saying, but I'm not allowed to go out there, which we all know you don't question your pimp, right? You do what they say. And so that was weird for me to even question him. And he smacked me across the face and he said, just do what I say. So I walked outside and he was smoking a cigarette, drinking a beer. And at the time I never smoked, never drank, didn't cuss. You know, I was this wholesome, good little Christian girl who was experiencing hell on earth, completely sober. And I remember looking at the cigarette and the beer thinking, maybe that will help me. Maybe then I won't feel everything that's happening to me. And for whatever reason, I went to grab the beer out of his hand and I got it almost up to my mouth and he smacked it out of my hand. And I was so mad that I went back and grabbed the cigarette out and just about got it up to smoke it. And he smacked that out of my hand and he stuck his finger in my face and said, my good girls don't do that. And I remember thinking in my head, you're good girls. There's nothing good about me. You've taken everything good away from me. And with his finger still in my face, he said, go inside. I'll be back in a minute, which I knew he was going to go get some buyers. And so I walked back inside. My dad was in the very back bedroom with some woman. Couldn't tell you who she was. I just knew there was another woman back there with him. And I walked inside. I heard the car leave and I literally heard an audible voice tell me you're my good girl. And I love you. And I looked down on the table and I saw my car keys and my cell phone, which I hadn't seen in a very long time. And he said, go run now. And so I ran, I went back to my grandpa. He was the only one. I didn't really tell him what had happened. I was horrified, but I told him something wasn't right. And he didn't push me for the whole story. He just was like, okay, I believe something's not right here. My trafficker was 28 and I was 16. So that right there told my grandpa something's not right. And um, he was horrified with how the church handled it. He ended up in his own way, leaving that church. He was still somewhat involved, but he very much pulled back from all his leadership responsibilities there because he couldn't handle how they handled it. And so he ended up helping me find a safe place to stay, stayed with one of his friends for a while, did some nannying work for them. Because of getting kicked out of my church, I had went to a Christian school 
And I had signed a waiver stating that I wouldn't have sex outside of marriage. So when I got kicked out of church, I actually got kicked out of my Christian school as well. So I ended up homeschooling myself that summer and realizing that because I'm such an overachiever at times, I only needed a credit and have to actually graduate high school, even as a junior. And so I homeschooled myself, took my credit in half, and then left that fall to go to college. And I thought when I got to college, it would be a fresh start. It wasn't a fresh start. Um, The pastor I had had called the school and warned them that they were allowing, and I'm going to quote exactly what he said, you're allowing a whore on your campus. And so I was put under a lot of restrictions. I was in trouble all the time. And at the same time, they were telling me I was the problem. I was having guys in this pastoral program call and ask me how much I charge. And so I was struggling. I'd been assaulted two or three times on campus. Like it was just one thing after another. And I thought I was never going to get out of that. Ended up in a abusive marriage for a while. Well, I say a while, about 12 years. And to me, that was a much better relationship than what I had been in. And it took a long time for me to see that really I traded one abuse for another. I was in this field for years before I even realized that the abuse that I was encountering from my ex-husband was part of why I couldn't recover certain pieces from my trauma. And that um, it really was the intimate partner violence is a real thing. He was utilizing a lot of the triggers that, you know, I'd brought him into therapy with me, explaining what some of my triggers were. And he was utilizing those to abuse me when I was in a vulnerable place and wouldn't recognize it. Something that was being done to me. I just thought it was a trigger I was having. Um, And so ended up getting out of that and really having to walk out that journey. So I've been free for a couple of years now and have really seen the healing that God brings when we are completely free, that learning to have fun again and to, to learn that fun doesn't mean something bad is going to happen to me or that I'm going to have to pay somebody back or suffer a consequence for years. You know, this past weekend, I was out on a boat with some friends and they're like, Hey, do you want to go tubing? And in my head, I was thinking, Oh, that looks really fun. And the minute I thought the word fun, I went, "Uh uh-oh, like my brain just kicked in, right? And was like, well, what am I going to do? Like, what's the repercussion of it? And I caught myself and was like, nope, I'm going to do this and have fun. And it's just going to be fun, you know? And it was an amazing time. Thankfully, God's put a lot of really great friends around me who are understanding and let me work through that process and gave a little bit of positive peer pressure that like, hey, all of us... uh, mama's on the boat are going to go out there. So join us, you know, it's not, there's nothing bad that's going to happen. And so over the last couple of years, just really taking that healing journey to that next level of really being able to understand what fun is, how to um, be confident in who God's created me to be and understand who I am as an individual and not put myself down because that's what I feel like religion taught me most of my life. So that's a little bit about my journey, a little bit of where I've come from. Wow, what is amazing and hard. And I don't know, I have like lots of words right now in my mind. But honestly, I'm so grateful that you're survived. I'm so grateful that um, 
you're doing what you're doing right now for yourself and your community but so many different points that your story touch on that I would like to unpack first of all thank you so much for your courage to share this story publicly and that's why man I have like goosebumps that's why I do this podcast because sometimes we think like I know from my own experience, I hid my story for 20 years because I thought it's story of shame, guilt, and condemnation. But now hearing your story and just think like, wow, this woman has light now. So I able to get there as well. So that's the point. Our story is all crazy. We all have trauma. We're talking right now on social media. Everything is so open. Me too movement and how we started talking about the depression and addiction in such a different way so I'm thankful for your courage because somebody else gonna hear that and somebody else gonna see themselves in the story because we are different and unique but some of us can um, see themselves in you and maybe somebody still in the, in the trauma or still in the abuse and still, like you said, don't even understand that this is not the trigger. This is actually happening. So I hope and pray if you guys stumble on, on purpose, download this episode, honestly, hear, hear the story, but hear the courage and hear the hope in this conversation and in the story, because honestly, this is the most important part to get through it, you know, because right now you probably don't understand why it's happening. Same as Amanda at that time, I didn't know maybe that's where I'm going to die. This is going to be me and this is going to be over. And now on another side, uh, changing the world. But I would like to point out some of the misconceptions we have and uh, your story would be a great example to it. Because uh, we really think that um, human trafficking, it's being like hold uh, against the will or being afraid of the safety or the victims being uh, physically, you know, kidnapped or have to be like violence involved and uh, like, you know, physical abuse. I always say if we see somebody dragging somebody by the hair and stuff it in the car like we see in movies, where are the way we would know that this is situation kidnapping or trafficking or abuse. But um, most of the time involve family and friends. With us, like this different situation, you know, because I was um, from the uh, broken family, you from the broken family, that another misconception I would like to address that anybody can be mm-hmm. a victim of human trafficking. Because it goes back to the vulnerabilities, right? Like every single person has a vulnerability. Yeah. And, you know, until we get really honest and we're willing to admit that every single one of us has a vulnerability and traffickers are good at finding them and exploiting them and making you think that they can fulfill that need, whether it's a physical need, an emotional need, a social need. I mean, it doesn't matter they're really good at doing this. And I think a lot of times we think of pimps or traffickers as stupid or, oh, they're just criminals. I think we're doing ourselves a disservice. They're some of the smartest criminals I've ever met. 
you know, Mm -hmm. and they are smooth and a lot of them have woo and are very likable and are probably the people you hold up as best liked person or, um, you know, best at winning people over, or, you know, they're people that you enjoy being around because they're fun. Otherwise they wouldn't be able to manipulate and coerce people as well as what they do, you know? So I think we often forget that vulnerabilities are really what we should be looking at. And I've been really excited in the last year to see that Polaris has changed their model from the red flags to looking around at your sphere of influence and being in community with people. Because I think for so long, we've talked about all these red flags of human trafficking And yeah, sometimes those do exist, but the majority of time you're not going to catch that someone's going to be potentially in an exploitative or trafficking situation, unless you're in community with that person, unless you have relationship with that person, because it's going to look different for each person, depending on who that trafficker is, what vulnerabilities are going on and how, um, how it looks for them, because there are so many different scenarios. Thank you so much for pointing that out. I really, really like that because sometimes the red flags might be not red flags, but we still have to look into it, especially like you mentioned, if um, the change of clothes, change of behavior, change of attitude, just don't dismiss anything. If you see something different happening to um, someone you know, friends, family, just ask questions. You might save someone's life. Another thing that I like to address is the church. And I'm so sorry that you went through this experience because for me, it was completely different experience with the church. And which is shows that God is not the church. Church is people and the people doing mistake because we still sinful people. The difference with Christians only because we do know Christ. And so how cool that you really saying that God met you in the woods, you know, not in the church, not in that building, not with those people, but in the woods and spoke to you. And I believe in Christ and God spoke to me in the field as well, saying that you made for more. At that time, I didn't even know that God was existed. So I found God. He helped me to deal with all the trauma and um, how beautiful you said, you know, you are my good girl you know, and that's what God said to me as well. Mm. A little bit different words, but he make me understand and believe and have faith into the fact that now I'm loved, I'm clean, I redeem, I forgiven. If you guys want to know my story, it's uh, first couple episodes of Love and Beloved podcast. And honestly, there's redemption and believe that whatever like I was doing before whatever was going on with me that I thought I was like worthless hopeless helpless abandoned and broken now change into my life is valuable and I am significant which is such a beautiful transformation that God allowed me to have because I have faith in him because I was able to quit drugs by myself I was able to deal with my trauma with the counseling and therapy and like you said I changed my sphere of influence and and the people who impact in my life at this point 
but without God, I would be still haunted by the memories, by the sins, by the everything that I've done. So I really like my mental health really suffer. And um, I was thinking through all of your story, you know, like thinking about the physical abuse, you know, because it's very familiar to me. There is like nothing new, but the trauma, every time you said, you know, I thought it's going to be different. I thought it's going to be better. I started a new start. But the trauma that follow you and still have like the same impact, the same situation, the same thing happening. And I was heartbroken for you. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, such a story. I'm I'm grateful that you shared this with us today. I appreciate you inviting me to do so. I mean, I think just one last piece that I would say to what you were just saying is that I think we often help human trafficking survivors through the big pieces. And unless we're really in community with those people, we don't think about those small things that can haunt us for years. The learning how to have fun, Um, learning how to have our emotions and to know that we're not going to get beat for expressing an emotion, Um, learning what food we like, what color we like. For years, I could tell you that color is red or that color is blue, but I didn't experience color. I didn't love color because to me, it was all really black and white. It was either good or bad. And I was just going to figure out how to survive. Um, I was so used to reading people and deciding what emotion I was going to have based on a situation instead of feeling something from the inside out. And so when I started having those feelings from the inside out, it came out really messy. You know, if you think of how you feel when you're angry and when you're excited, you have some of the same physical reactions, right? Your heart starts beating, you have the um, excitement, you know, your voice might go faster. um, You might get louder, you know, those types of things. And it's the same as if you're excited about something or very passionate about something. Right. And so learning to be able to identify, um, I'm really excited right now, or I'm really angry right now. And to parse those things out and be safe in doing them. I think we often forget that while survivors might go through program, they might go through therapy, they might overcome their addiction. They're still left with years of body memories that pop up. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've woken up and I just have a random bruise on me and I'm like, okay, God, where'd that bruise come from? And he goes, oh, you need to pray about this because this is where that bruise came from. Right. I can't tell you how many times you are triggered in, or at least as a survivor, I'm triggered in one way or another. And I have to go, okay, I'm safe. I'm not in that scenario anymore. And I have to work through that trigger. Now, how's that? happen less and less over the years? Yeah, absolutely. Therapy helps. um, Healing prayer helps. Walking with God through all of that helps. But it's not completely gone, you know? And there are days where just getting out of bed is hard because our bodies have experienced years and years of trauma. Um, I was at a conference recently and they talked about how survivors' bodies are almost 20 years older than what their actual age are because of the trauma we've experienced. So as a 35 year old, I'm actually, some days I feel like a 55 year old, you know? And so all of those things we don't necessarily think about. And so when we talk about 
walking alongside survivors. We're not talking about extracting them out of their situation, putting them in a restorative program, and now they're fixed. What we're talking about is walking with them through the journey of them deciding whether or not they want to leave that life. What does their best life look like? It's walking with them through that journey, through the ups and downs and the relapses and the going back and the coming back out and making all those decisions. And then not just putting them in a program and going, okay, they're fixed. It's continuing with them through that process because it's years and years and years of struggle and success and struggle and success and relapse and going forward and backwards and working and wrestling through what does this look like for me to live in healing? But at the end of the day, healing is possible. And if we really believe what we say, we believe as Christians, we believe in God. We believe that God is the healer. We believe that there is hope. If we really truly believe it, there's no fear in walking with somebody through that process because we know that he is healing. Even when there's relapse, there's still healing happening. Even when there's a step backward, there's still healing happening because he's the healer. He is the one who's walking them through the journey. We just get to come alongside. It's not for us to create the journey or push them down the road. It's for us to just walk with them and remind them it is worth it. There is hope and there is healing. That is beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. Honestly, one moment. Tell me it's not a spiritual attack because today of all of the days I have to talk. Well, Jesus, you know exactly what is going on in her body right now. And if this is a spiritual attack from the enemy, we do break it off in Jesus name and we declare healing and life and that there's calmness in her throat, that all repercussions from the enemy completely stop that any body memories or triggers or thoughts that could potentially be coming up, all of them are just ceased in your name and that she gets to walk the rest of her day knowing that you are her healer. And so I just pray that you would calm her throat and her coughing and give her complete rest and healing in Jesus name. Like, honestly, I was thinking in my head, Just scrap it what you want to say, but I don't want to scrap it. I don't wait. And because I want to talk about this. Thank you so much for prayer. Yeah. Really. It's beautiful. Thank you. So I have this Psalm 91 on my wall. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. And I'm so grateful that you didn't have a good experience with the church, but you didn't give up on faith and you didn't give up on God. On God, And oh my goodness, when you were talking about the survivors and how to, <clears throat> and how to live with them and lead them, I totally thought about myself because it took me like 20 years. I'm not perfect, guys. So there is no due date to your healing Nope. <laughs> it's still going to be a process. Like you said, sometimes it's going to be easy. Some of the stuff going to be easier to deal with. When I come out from human trafficking, I realized that I was socially unfit. I have to learn all those things that mm-hmm. you were talking about. 
about emotions, about like what I like, what I dislike. Mm-hmm. And um, my friend asked me what your dreams are when I was 23. Sorry, guys, I gotta have this really weird voice and we're trying to finish this episode. I can you not like on purpose. My throat is so sore and I'm coughing nonstop, but I want to finish this up because it's important. That time, 20 years ago, I had no support. Right now, we have like an amazing organizations who fights mm-hmm. against human trafficking. Amanda, you guys have your own consulting firm that helps survivors. I'm going to post the hotlines in this episode. I'm going to post a couple organizations in U.S. and Canada that you can reach out to because I'm supporting and I partner up with organizations who fight against this hideous crime and injustice. So you have an amazing resources right now. If you are still in the pit of this despair, they can help you and give you counseling and therapy and whatever you need, maybe even housing or lawyer, whatever you need, they're going to help you with. Or if you're someone who would like to partner up and make a difference in people's life, reach out to Amanda or to me or to the organization that I'm going to post. And honestly, if God bless you with the funds and move your heart to uh, donate funds, do that, please. But if you want to just participate and partner up doing outreach or fundraising or um, commit your time instead, you know, because it's more available to you, please do that as well, because I do believe it's super worthy cause. So Amanda, where can people go find out more about your work? So we are a newer agency. Um, So we're working on getting through all the social media platforms. So right now we're on Facebook and we're also on LinkedIn. It's pulley-consulting and you're welcome to reach out to us either place and whether you send us a message, you can find our contact information. Um, I'm sure you're going to be posting all of that below as well. Reach out to us. We, you know, if we don't know the, the answer or we can't provide the service to you, um, we know a lot of people in this industry and we're happy to point you in the right direction. We, our belief is that we're better together than um, competing with each other or, you know, trying to do our own thing. And so we definitely want to um, support everyone in their journey to figuring out how they can impact and see human trafficking end in their sphere of influence. That's awesome. And before I let you go, Amanda, I would like to ask you my signature question. What does love and to be loved means to you? I don't know why that almost makes me cry. (laughs) I knew you were going to ask me that because I've listened to some podcasts, but wow. Um, To be loved for me really does mean freedom. It means that as I am, not because of what I do, not because of my story, not because of where I've been, but because I exist in this world, there is a God who loves me and sees me as his daughter. And he doesn't see me as the daughter that he rolls his eyes at or gets frustrated with. He adores us. And to really understand what love means and that he dotes over us as his daughters has rocked my world. If you're looking for a book, Abba's Child by Brennan Manning, 
literally rocked my world for years. He just the way he breaks down the love of God is amazing. And so to love and be loved first, it starts with me understanding that I'm loved to be able to love others. I have to understand that I'm loved and that I'm accepted as I am because I exist in this world. And I know they can't see me, but I actually have beloved tattooed on my clavicle because I've always, I need the reminder that I am the beloved of God, that he does love me. It's beautiful. Any final thoughts, Amanda? Just that there is healing. There's absolute healing. We're two survivors who've walked very different journeys, experienced different things. And at the end of the day, we're sitting here saying the healing's worth it. It's hard. It's not easy. You're never going to hear me say that healing is easy or that there's an easy way to go about it. I've never even once told any of the survivors I've worked with that because it's just not true. It's hard work. It's intense. And the enemy does come after us hard because he thinks he has claim to our lives, but he doesn't. God does. And we are, we are the beloved of God. We are loved and we are loved because we simply exist in this world, not because we've done anything. So healing's there. It is possible. It's worth the hard work. And if you need the encouragement, if you need the help, it's worth reaching out, whether it's to us or another agency. There are survivors who are willing to walk with you. There are good people in this world who might not even be survivors that are willing to walk with you. And that's what we all need. We all need community and people to come alongside of us and to walk the journey, reminding us that we are loved. Amen to that. Thank you, Amanda, for being our guest. You've provided so much insight. I really appreciate you sharing with us today. Our special guest is Amanda Pule. And Amanda is a human trafficking expert, trainer, consultant, and survivor. For the last seven years, she has worked directly with human trafficking victims, consulted with Homeland Security and FBI, and numerous law enforcement agencies, and developed a human trafficking advocacy training specifically designed to equip advocates in this field. Thank you so much for that, because honestly, to seeing that from different perspective as a survivor, it adds so much value and so much more expertise. So thank you so much for doing that. And Amanda has a passion to see people set free and walk their healing journey. And Pula Consultant was born out of desire to fight human trafficking from um, those unique perspective as well. So we discuss how the church communicates and which can be empowering or really hurtful for survivors. But I want to add that not only for survivors, for people in general. So mm -hmm. please do not give up on God just because you give up on the church. Okay, guys, just give God another chance and you're going to hear that you are beloved. And again, don't hesitate to reach out to Amanda. I will post links to everything that was mentioned in this episode in the show notes and stay tuned for another edition of love and beloved and thank you so much for listening and thank you amanda i'm so grateful for you and your time thank you for having me and remember you are never alone you are loved you are god's treasure precious and priceless to him
Thank you for listening to Love and Be Loved. If you have any questions about what you heard today, visit lovedandbeloved.com. It's love and the letter B with no E, loved.com. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and share the show. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you'd like to connect, we would love to hear from you. So send a quick note to lenasabula at gmail.com. Stay healthy, stay safe, love, and be loved.